0: Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. All righty then, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special episode of Privacy, Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and I'm hanging out with Gabe Gums and a jam-packed all-star privacy palooza craziness. I don't even know what to even say about it, but i um, super excited, super to have everyone here. You know, it's it's Privacy Week, and this is just an honor to be a part of the, the community that we've built up, and honored to have all of you here. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to join us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Can, Insert, I mean, uh, yeah. Actual, he has actual sound effects, but we're going low. I do. This week. Yeah. Going low I'm going to bang stuff together. <laughs> Who's in the um, we got a lot of people in the room. That is true.
2: I'm Rebecca Harold. I'm based out of Des Moines, Iowa, and I am uh, the CEO of the Privacy Professor Consultancy that I started in 2004, and Privacy and Security Brainiacs that I started in 2021. And my podcast is Data Security and Privacy with Privacy Professor.
0: Great, Joe.
3: Joe Daner. Hi, thanks for inviting me, Cameron. I, I do the Data Privacy Detective podcast, just posted number 110 uh, today. We're, t- we're doing this in late January of 2023. I've been a lawyer for almost 50 years. I think I'm the old guy on this panel today. <laughs> Privacy and computers go back to when I used to rent a half hour a time on a mainframe, and little green and white paper would print out. So I, I've seen it from its infancy. It's fascinating. I basically do international law at a six hundred uh, lawyer law firm.
0: Amazing. Thank you,
4: Puneet. Hi, Punit Patya. Thanks for having me. I'm the CEO of Fit for Privacy and the podcast, the Fit for Privacy podcast. And yes, uh, just like everyone else, I'm the privacy professional who helps uh, CXOs with privacy strategy and an international strategy based on the GDPR based uh, principles. Awesome. Kay?
5: Hi, I'm Kay Royal. I am co host of the Serious Privacy Podcast with Paul Breitbart out of the EU. Those of you that have listened are quite familiar that we have two very distinct perspectives and personalities, so it actually makes for a lot of fun. Uh, In my day life, I am a global privacy officer with OutSchool, Inc. Um, It is an online ed tech provider. Absolutely love that. And I also teach privacy law at Arizona State University. Awesome. And Debbie? Debbie? Thank you, everyone. Uh, My name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva.
6: I'm the CEO and founder of Debbie Reynolds Consulting. I work at the intersection of law and technology. Um, I'm also very thrilled to be here with other fellow podcast hosts. My podcast is called the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast.
0: Awesome. Well, it's a pleasure to have all you here and to meet some of you for the first time. Um, Again, this is such an all-star cast, and we appreciate uh, you taking the time to join us and uh, have this panel discussion. So again, l- why don't we just kind of jump into things? I'd love to hear from each of you on your thoughts of the the increasing amount <clears throat> of activity that we've been seeing around with chat GPT and the privacy impl- implications that have been kind of coming up and just so many different streams that, that this could cause with privacy issues.
4: Well, that's something we got to deal with. That's going to be the future. There's going to be chat GPT, there's going to be AI, there's going to be all these things which are going to record. There's also uh, some tools which record us, do their voice analytics, data analytics on how we speak, what we do, which uh, uh, background we are from. So this is going to be a reality. That's the face of AI. So the only way to do is manage it. No?
6: Yeah, you can't stop it can't stop it. <laughs> so I think, you know, it, there is, we're going to um, literally have a quantum leap forward in terms of technology. And so I think people are already struggling with the technology we have now. So it creates opportunities and risk. And I always say things like AI and emerging technologies, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So it can do really great things or it could do really bad things, I think. From a privacy perspective, I think people aren't, uh, AI isn't as transparent as it should be. Uh, We're not sure how this data is being used. So I think there are probably going to be a lot more, a lot more uh, governments and jurisdictions creating laws around AI that touch on
5: privacy. Agreed. I don't think the lies the laws or the lies. Talk about a Freudian slip there. Uh I don't think the laws are going to go far enough. Right? (laughs) I don't think the laws are going to go as far as we want them to do. I'm going to be the cynical one in here and say, I don't think we're going to have sufficient or adequate laws to address the dangers of AI for quite some time. I think we're going to be relying on a lot of piecemeal judicial decisions, just like we are for privacy in general. And I don't know that I would expect a state or a federal Congress to act on it unless something absolutely teetotally horrible happens, like they use it on the senators in a detrimental light. Uh, I also hope that EU would go a little further when it put out its um, paper. They did not. And the last thing, as I will say, what we're really running up against is the ethics that are used in AI. And I don't see where there's an easy solution to that.
1: Isn't it always the case, though, that, the law la- lags behind oh. technology, and of course. isn't it somewhat intentional? To but is that also somewhat intentional to your point? Okay, of you know, until something tragic happens, do we, I don't think we really want it to to be ahead of it in in some cases, though, right? Like, I well, it's hard to get it ahead of it. Like full in innovation.
2: Well, yeah, okay, that's true. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard. The law will never be engulfing all of the issues. The law will never no. engulf all problems because laws are, are primarily reactive, but there's still risks there that are outside of the law. And with uh, Chad why that's something to consider. Um, I did a little experiment with it. I asked uh, it to write an essay, a short essay about me, uh, and I did it five different times. And I got five different essays, and they were well written, but they had a lot of errors. A lot of things were attributed to me that I didn't do. A lot of things uh, were not in what I had done. And what was very interesting, too, from a privacy standpoint, it was clear that it went into the Wayback Machine to get some of that data so folks who think that ChatGPT will, you know, only be looking at what's new or recent, you have to keep in mind that even those things that you think you might have deleted, uh, of course, once it's been online, it's not, it's out there somewhere, hiding in the, the corners of it's the... It's not
1: exactly why the Right to Be Forgotten was created was that, though, like it's out
2: the, You have the right to be forgotten, but I think what Chat GPT is getting to is the <laughs> fact that You'll, you can never be forgotten with these types of tools, especially Ooh. with AI that's digging into it. So what's going to happen if an organization told you that, yes, we have deleted all your information, ChatGBT B- digs it up because it found it somewhere that somebody had posted it as soon as they saw it. So I think that's going to be an issue that we'll have to deal with going forward with it.
3: So As a lawyer, I'll tell you, lawyers are always the janitors of the world. We're always sweeping up after (laughs) things happen. But I've got to say, and I'd be curious, Putin, if you agree with me, GDPR is one of those set of laws. It's a binding regulation for 450 million people that got ahead of technology. I, I, I would put it that way. In a way, it's too strict, too binding, and now we're seeing the consequences. I just did a podcast on a very interesting thing that's going on by the, through the Netherlands, you all may be aware. But instead of just suing somebody when something bad happens, as you're saying, Gabe, and that's what governments do, of course, they're actually auditing and then meeting with companies like Microsoft and Google. You mentioned kids, and this gets into the chatbot with children. What they did instead of saying, you're violating it and you got to change everything, they said, let's work together on this. Like when a child in a classroom inputs things into a learning platform, it's more than the input that's at stake. It's how do they do it? When do they do it? How, what strokes are they using? All sorts of data is gathered. And what really happened through this kind of collaboration that the Dutch are using? I call it Dutch treatment, which is good treatment, is let's work with Microsoft and Google and other tech giants so that their use of the data is very clearly limited. Data minimization, that approach, good for privacy, and yet can help Google or Microsoft or whoever it is improve their product over time. It's a very interesting thing that's going on, and I think we're getting away from a focus on data breach and $800 million dollar euro fines and so on. What is the real infrastructure? And that's going to be a key to AI and privacy.
4: I think that's very true. There's this kind of... Uh... Uh, behavior, but there's also the other behavior wherein there are collaborative communities coming up who are looking at how do we, for an industry, take care of it, like a code for testing, a code for IT uh, development, things like that are happening. So GDPR is more of a seed for many other things to happen. I mean, every conversation on privacy, all of us having the privacy podcast is thanks to GDPR because we get the visibility. And that's the conversation. The conversation starter. And we have to also remember that when something is free, like ChatGPT, like Gmail, like some other things, then we are the product because it's not free. Because we are the product, and we are being paid. We are we are getting the service, and we are paying through our data. That's that's essentially how it is.
1: In the case of ChatGPT, we're definitely paying them with something, and they, we're we're QAing it. This is exactly what we're doing. And man, has this been one hell of a QA QA experiment? <laughs> they've they've succeeded big time. There are a number of scenarios that pop into my mind from, from both of these conversations. The least of which is Rebecca makes an amazing point that hadn't really occurred to me. But when you train an AI model, you've trained it. You can update that model. But if you didn't update it, what it knows is what it knows and what it outputs is, right? Like, so you get this kind of garbage in, garbage out scenario. Joe brought up the scenario of, of GDPR outpacing technology. And, and Kay, I would argue that not only has it in that Scenario, But I think it can. And the one that comes into my mind most is the scenario where I think I heard someone else mention it. And this is a complete straw, man. So please burn it down, folks. I don't get this opportunity often with with, with all of you smart privacy folks. But you have organizations today that are largely um, uh, mental health delivery services, right? Like as a service delivered online. And some of them are getting criticism right now for using canned messages in response to Folks asking them for help, right? Um, in particular, some of them are being kind of, uh, examined for, and I say examined, I mean that publicly, not, not in, in any, in any regulatory way, but you know, folks asking the question, like, should it be that you can get this kind of care via just chat? So you could go as far as the outlaw and just put a law in the books right now that says you're never allowed to use generative AI for medical care. What would you think if if someone went that far? If I proposed that tomorrow, if I said it right now, I just said it. I don't think it's a good idea to use generative AI for for healthcare. What say you?
6: I'm not a fan at all, zero, zero, for using AI for high stakes uses. I think it should be kind of these lower stakes uses, right? Like, you know. I had I used it recently. Had the format, I had a bibliography in APA style, and I wanted to change it to Vancouver, right? And it did it, bam! That's cool. Uh, medical uh, health, all that? No, 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 no. I don't think you
1: don't, so. You don't want you don't want an AI therapist.
6: You're not into the no. AI
1: therapist. You're selecting out.
6: <laughs> <health laughs> no, no, I don't think that's a good use. Okay, well, I don't think it's a good use. <laughs>
5: Well, I'm going to jump in because I do come from a counseling background and a registered nurse before I became an attorney, so I have a little bit of experience with this. It's all much older than either of my children. But regardless, um, I will disagree on the medical part, and I very rarely ever disagree with Debbie, but I'm going to disagree on the medical part because AI can learn from Millions and millions of images and information that a person never could. So it would be able to compare, let's say, assist, you know, uh, assist in the brain a tumor in the brain, uh, something in the brain, it can learn from millions and millions and millions what minute differences there might be between them in order to better predict which one might be high risk. Now, you'd still want a person looking at it, going with their instinct or whatever, but if you could get millions of scans of a particular type of tumor on a particular piece of body, let's say on your index finger, And you had millions of points of data to assess that, and that could help inform the doctor what to do. I definitely want to take advantage of that. And we are taking advantage of that. We're seeing a lot of AI in use in the medical. When you talk about generative AI, though, yeah, okay,
1: Yeah, we're talk about generative. Yeah. Drug generative, yeah, yeah. That,
5: that's I mean, a little different. It's, yeah.
1: it's cool and it has its problems, right? Like if I train it on a model of only black men from sub-Saharan Africa, you might not want it examining your pictures, right? Like you might, right. Right, like, like that model. Might data
5: in, data out.
1: Absolutely. But generative AI though, like talk to me about that from, from both of those practitioners standpoints where it's now going to maybe look at all that data and not just, you know, say this may be cancerous, but like come up with a treatment plan or better yet. Like it automatically goes in and starts like, ah, I'll just go ahead and remove the.
5: I'll write the assessment and tell you how to treat it. Exactly. No, that's always always going to need. Generates the assessment
1: and generates the treatment. Like it. To deduce the, tr- the, the 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 problem is one thing, but to have it then generate the solution yeah. is that way we're all getting a little yeah is that where the lines are
6: yeah I don't yep. yeah no well, we I think, think our brains to, were created for
3: something no no well I think you have to distinguish between the benefits that Kay has well stated which I don't think anybody would argue uh, about right. at all and the communication piece. It's the data in flight when it becomes problematic. I was part of a discussion with some of the European regulators, and they're far ahead of us in telemedicine and many other ways. Uh, And and a tragic example of an overuse of AI in the communication space was the doctor who was not in a very small town in the prairie area of the United States. had to be telemedicine and put his diagnosis in and then went on to the next patient in the Communication came to the hotel room in this little place where the family was gathered around this gentleman. He was going to find out, is it cancerous? What does he have? And the robot came on and said to the whole group, you have three months to live. That was it. Real bedside manner. I mean, you know, that's a kind of graphic example of where it goes too far. (laughs) Yeah. But the use of AI to add to the predictive capabilities of a radiologist or someone else are undeniable.
5: Yeah. Right. Well, and even in court decisions, being able to assess millions, maybe not millions, hundreds of thousands of juvenile records to be able to pull up what are the commonalities and repeat offenders and different things. Same thing. You you want that mass of mm.
1: data, and data, what do you call data it in data, crowd data, yeah, data in data to
5: benefit you. Yeah.
1: When if laws, if laws or environmental controls force externalities to skew the data. You still have in and out problems, but yeah, this is a fascinating conversation.
0: Um, Rebecca, you had something? Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, I think also let's bring the cybersecurity into this because if I, I always love to, to put on my malicious hat. If I wanted to screw up a hospital system and and have mass killings or deaths, I would think, what could I do? I could salt the um, data that the ai is using with incorrect information. I think that's why I think using ai as a tool is a good thing. But it has to be used by a physician or a nurse or a caregiver who understands what to look for when things might be a little off or don't seem right because if you have someone who's qualified, experienced, knowledgeable to say wait a second, you know this doesn't seem right. What it's telling me is something we should do. We don't want it to become like that um, episode of The Office where Michael pulled, turned into the lake just because his GPS pulled <laughs> into the lake. You know? Great, and great episode. What I see this as, as possibly being if you don't always keep in mind that you have to have good data. And your algorithms have to be dependable within a certain percentage of accuracy otherwise if somebody screws with that then there's going to be bad consequences
6: yeah I think we can't we can't advocate our I'm sorry uh, we, we can't advocate our human responsibility to AI that's the that's the crux of it right so the they, the AI isn't a doctor it's not a nurse you know it can help you with heavy lifting and give you suggestions but I think, if we're, you know, the example I give is, you know, AI should be in the passenger seat, not the driver's seat. So mm-hmm. if we're thinking about driver <laughs> seat point. scenarios, then we're going the wrong direction.
1: That ship sailed. The cars are on the road already.
6: Let me pull this back
1: <laughs> to a privacy topic, though. A privacy topic. And then, Panid, I want I want you to be the first one to weigh in here because there's another privacy topic. A lot of these models are being trained. Almost all of them are being trained on you know, publicly accessible data. That means your data, my data. So these models are being used for both commercial use, government use, et cetera. And no one asked me if anything about me, you know, I didn't get, no one asked my permission to use any data point about me to train their
4: model. So where do we come down on this one? Puneet. I think there's a difference here. It's context and outcome based. In the context, your data is there, my data is there, everyone's data is there. That's not the problem. But if that data is being used to do something against me and create harm for me, then it's not done. But if that data is being used in the context of larger good for the society and some help to the society and some solutions for the society, then no one has a problem. But again, the thing is, it needs to be reasonable and it needs to be explainable. If you can explain it, this is what we are doing and this is the outcome and it doesn't create any harm for you. I don't think people will have an issue. The whole, the whole scaremongering is when we say your data is being used. We don't know what will happen, and you are at, your privacy is at risk. That's the problem. The problem is that one, not the use you know, of data. You know,
1: yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's fearmongering so much as if it, if I let, let's remove the harm or no harm. Let's just take commercial use. Like what yeah. now? If someone just like benefits exponentially financially, and I see no return on that while my data was used to train that model. Like from a privacy perspective, if you say the data is out in the open, it's out in the open, right? Like it's mined to be used. Is it, it, is, is it still the same as all the other data that is being mined today, M-I-N-E-D?
4: But then that's in layers. Okay. First is the public data, which is available. There, I don't have any right. It's public data. So like yeah. LinkedIn profile or other, other trails. However... When what I'm doing with my bank or with my healthcare provider, with my doctor, with my hospital, that's in personal context. There, if it's getting used, there, if it's getting analyzed, I need to know and I like to have consent. Or if it's going to be used for research purposes, then I need to know. But then the next element is, am I going to get a commercial offer? If I'm going to get a commercial offer or the company is going to create a commercial proposition, then my data needs to be rewarded and I need to be asked consent or reward. Either way.
1: I think I think what you're saying is, and everyone and and correct me here too, is, you know, this sounds like we should treat it similar to the way we treat data today, right? Like I have to give that consent to use it. The the public example that that kind of flashed into my mind why I threw up yet another scarecrow here to be burned down was the area of art. There are a number of artists that are, that are not pleased that their art is being used to train these models. And what it's doing is it's training the models based on their style, right? So like as a cartoonist, you have this specific style and it is then using their styles to then generate new things. And so there's that, there's still this, this this weird place that, that I don't know that we've discovered yet in law or in life of not just taking the data, but taking the data and generating something new from, like, what makes me uniquely me? What makes my style unique my style? If you think about the arts, musicians, et cetera. But I'll tell you, as someone who creates software for a living, there's a certain art to that, too. That if you were to look at code, you could equally start doing similar things. And I worry, you know, where is where's the privacy line? I, I personally feel like generative AI does start skewing the lines further, and it's not just data. But I'm not able to articulate it well enough yet. And I think like, hey, I'll know the problem when I see it in a while. Like when you see that problem, it's like, ah, there it is. That's the problem. But it feels it feels like there's a problem out there waiting to happen.
5: Well, I will add in here, and someone mentioned it a little while ago, it has to be based on accurate data. Rebecca, I think you mentioned if you were to solve the data The problem can be accurate data. The data that goes in can absolutely be accurate. Uh, One of the examples I love to use when talking about AI ethics is if you look at, um, if you own a retail store, who should you be watching for shoplifting? 25 to 31-year-old African-American males. Why? Because 25 to 31 African-American males make up the greatest percentage of population in prison and recidivism, okay, that data is accurate. No no argument. That data is accurate. They are. However, let's back it up to the cultural problems and look at were they the only ones arrested? Were they identified wrong? Could they not afford attorneys? Are there just as many white and Native American and Indian anyone else people that could have been found guilty? So the problem isn't accurate data. The problem is our culture, that we have the wrong cultural rules and mores and standards that built in to produce that data. You could take it to a less controversial example and say red cars get caught more often for speeding. That could also be accurate, but does it have anything really to do with the color of the car? No, it just happens to be red cars attract the people who like to go faster and they're the ones that get caught because they catch the eye of the cops, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of reasons here. Doesn't mean that the accurate that the data that's not in there is inaccurate. So it's not bad data necessarily. There's a lot more problems in data ethics for AI than just having bad data. Can I help? Well, Can
2: I help? Yeah, the algorithm has to be useful and and provide accurate results. Though that's the other side of the coin, right? With the data, you have the results of the algorithms. But I kind of want to go back to. Um, what Puneet said earlier about, you know, the greater good, I think that's a, that's an issue too, that who yeah. says what the greater good is. I mean, yeah. we've seen that with encryption, uh, <laughs> over decades, you know, people want to put back doors in encryption to be able to, uh, for the greater good, be able to get into files for, you know, for crimes. And, and this is kind of leading to that same argument. So I think the cultural mores, you know, right. Cultural mores, exactly. So, I, think, you know, I, think
1: I think that's I, another I, yeah. thing. It sounds good, but who decides what the greater good is? Who decides what the
3: greater good but is? So Rebecca, if you want a great <laughs> example of how this could work, what Puna was talking about, uh, consider the French system for posting medical records of individuals. Now, France makes it optional with each individual French citizen to post all of their medical records, as many as they wish, into a central database run by the government. And so far, it hadn't been hacked. Anything's hackable someday. Why would someone join that? Very simply, because if you're in a car accident, uh, not in your home, the emergency room immediately has access to whether you're allergic to something, what your blood type is, and when you can't even talk about it. So you can see the benefits. So if you can convince people, now this is one where it's not, the French government's not taking commercial advantage. Uh, uh, Gabe, it's not stealing an author's uh, site. So, you know, this is one where the greater good matches up with what most people want. And the amazing thing over its first 10 years of use is more than half the French population has signed up for this. It has already saved lives. Those who don't want to join, that's fine. Very interesting approach to thinking about this whole thing. So the privacy becomes your choice rather than you being a victim of what someone does to you.
1: I think yeah,
2: we're, no, we're not putting just,
1: I, I think no, if I can. Devil,
2: devil, and I have just a, a devil's advocate there. Let's say I put it out there and I don't mm-hmm. know that people are looking at that to make decisions on whether or not to hire me based upon my health or, you know, to give the, me a loan. So, so that's you know that's one of the things that people need to consider that they might not even know is going on because who knows who's using. Well, that. I want to be
3: data. real clear. This this data is not public, as Pune you pointed out. Public it's public. That's mm-hmm. This is kept very privately, but for the purpose described, we are, which is we to are aid sure, you, huh? or you go to a new doctor. You move from Marseille to Paris. And they say, well, it's in the system. You don't have to fill out a hundred things uh, waiting for an hour for your doctor's appointment. You see what I mean? So this is, you know, it's, but it's not available to everybody. That would be very different.
1: That example assumes trust also though, right? Although it not being public yes. and I'll, I'll, I'll do the Rebecca thing cause I'm, I'm a hacker by trade, right? It, in a, in a nationalized healthcare system where the government owns that data could they make decisions about who gets care and who doesn't? Can they prioritize who does and who doesn't based on that? It's like, oh, look, you know, Cameron's a nice guy and he needs a liver transplant, but, you know, he just – he stopped drinking, but he still likes. He still likes to do something else. I don't know, whatever the hell it is. I'm making up a bit. What I'm getting at is, there's still a lot of trust in there mm-hmm. that I think we're just kind of we're skipping right past in in some of these scenarios where I have to trust that not only they will never do the wrong thing with it, but that again the greater good lines up on both ends theirs and yeah. mine, and that I have to trust that they also protect that information as well.
6: I don't
3: know. I think my well, that's right, and that's why the rules of the system are absolutely critical. Transparency is essential, or none of the this- this is going to work at all. Trans- and assuming transparency and uh, the best efforts uh, anybody can make to keep something private that they've agreed to keep private, that that's the best the world can do.
1: Indeed. I transparency, oh, And
6: then giving you the choice, what you want done with it. You see? I think we're, uh, I think trans- the thing that I concerns me is that now. I'm sorry, go ahead.
4: Annette. I was saying, I like to come back on the aspect of AI reviewing or analyzing the art of people. I think that's not, in my view, a privacy issue. That's an IP or a copyright issue. because That's right. That's how we need to look at it because it's not personal data. It's about copyright or uh, intellectual property being looked at. So that's maybe outside the scope of us as privacy professionals. That's how I would put it to a client. But... Well, yes, it, it's uh, I think you're right, copyright
3: and copyrights one where most countries are part of an international convention with pretty much the same rules.
4: Well,
6: I'll, I'll give you two, well, two things I want to say. One is there is an example where a person had given their image for a medical study and that image end, ended up in a public database. Right. So this is a privacy issue. Right. Uh, that and then I'm concerned that we're creating like a digital cast system. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett and Mark Mark Zuckerberg aren't concerned about privacy, right? Because they can decide, pick and choose what gets collected about them and what information, you know, so even in K. Royal's example about, you know, uh, the African-American men who get, uh, who are in prison or whatever, you know, these, uh, you know, If you live on a side of town that is not surveilled (laughs) as much, it's not like there are less crime there. It's just less recording of things that happen, right? So then what we're doing is putting these things in databases and making it seem like everything is equal, but not a person who has the means to keep their data out of these systems, their information. We're We're not all the same. I guess that's what I'm trying to say.
3: Well, you're into the biometric area there, and Illinois is the first state to adopt a law about that. And that's, you know, that police would use it to wrongly profile people. But Australia has find that's its, its large, largest find in data privacy history in Australia is around this scraping of facial information and using it about Australian citizens. In uh, in Ireland, they they find Meta what was it, 275 million dollars for allowing the scraping of, of what goes on on Facebook I mean these are very interesting issues uh, yeah and they're definitely so privacy Joe, issues
0: what you're saying is that money can buy anything you want. Yes
5: <laughs> well privacy is, <laughs> pretty much privacy is becoming something that only people with means can afford uh, as Panit said earlier and we all know if it's free you're the product. Well who can afford? The paid services, it's not going to be the overwhelming general population. So privacy is becoming a luxury item, perhaps.
3: Mm. Well, it certainly is monetary value. I mean, there's a new entrant uh, coming out with a smartphone uh, later this year. The name of the company is Unplugged. It's an Israeli company that is a totally private privacy centric phone. So your geolocation information will be due But you have to pay for it. You see, you have to pay for it. And we're going to find out soon whether people are willing to pay for their privacy. <laughs> well,
1: I don't know that I'm using that phone, but you know <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> that. Do you trust? Do you trust your iPhone or your Samsung? Ah, but so you know, there, I, I
1: inherently, think. but there, I inherently distrust it.
3: <laughs> right? Well, yeah. And the yeah. default setting is they know where you've been every every hour you've driven your car and every yeah, time yeah, you've yeah, used no, to your no, location. That really these, that's what we're dealing with. This is, uh, you know, a woman going to a health clinic. That can be picked right off the phone, and uh, pr- the prosecutor can get a hold of it. And this is not political. This is not partisan political. An NRA owner going to a gun show, that'll show up. So it has nothing to do with how you feel or what your quirks are or anything else. This is really serious stuff, and right now we, for convenience, we give it away, and then a lot of money's made by the tech companies. Ah. And these things. And, things, and now we'll know if people are willing to pay for it. Uh, actually, instead of having that done to them,
2: we'll find out. Well, and, but to add to that, like the the instances of sending texts based on geofencing is increasing, uh, and I and it happened to me personally um, after Dobbs was overturned there started to be a lot of targeted messaging to locations where young women of childbearing age were known to be. So they would send messages and I'd read about this and I researched this. Well, in September, I actually went to get my hair trimmed. And as I, and a lot of younger women go there than I am. I was there and I got three texts while I was sitting in the the chair waiting for my person Mm -hmm. to, to cut my hair and it was telling me about my reproductive choices and what I should and should not do. And I thought, this is happening to me, what I was doing. <laughs> wow. I didn't want these. And it really made me mad to get them and because they were just filled with disinformation. Yeah. And, you know, how do I pay to not get that? Would those messages still come to me? even if I paid for my privacy because they're using a different type of communication tool through my phone and it was based upon my location. So, you know,
1: I can tell it's, you, it's really Based on experience today, so theme parks struggle with this quite a bit. And I, I have mm-hmm. a lot of friends in the security industry. And so in particular, theme parks for probably the last eight years have had or more have had that exact problem. And so the answer for them is they combat that, in park with technologies to confuse and confound the ones that are trying to do that. Um, it's been a hell of a cat and mouse game As all security is, but your, your point is an interesting one too. your question is, um, who, whose is it to fix that? you where you exist in public space is not a private thing, but using that information to then, you know, solicit you. I guess that kind of happens now though, right? Like you 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 could call it a billboard, you get a billboard based on where you're at.
2: Well, true, but there's not a record of you reading that billboard.
1: I don't disagree. Right yeah, yeah, no, it goes a lot further than yeah.
2: Yeah, the text message is now in my phone, and the and the phone company shows that they can yeah. contact yeah. me, and I know the verbiage. And now, who else have they shared that with? It could have that oh,
1: delivered a virus. It could have delivered a link to something. It could. There is no shortage exactly. of attack vectors. You are not wrong. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. yeah, but it, well, and it's Rebecca. A privacy
3: you know, too though. Rebecca. You see, you are bringing up a really important point here because a lot of us in the data privacy world think of. Uh, data privacy being the misuse of our personal data. But privacy also means the right to be left alone if you want to be left alone. Who gets left alone by their smartphone or their landline, for those who still have one, or or what happened to you? And if we think of privacy that way, the laws really have to change, and technology needs to change. So you can ad block by default, you see, which is sort of – you see what I mean? But that's not the current setup. <laughs>
0: You know, that, that brings up a funny thing that I just thought of, and this might be a little out of place, but that's why I'm here. You know, I always found it funny that, uh, you know, when they used to have those mystery shows of missing people and it, it would always air conveniently at 11 a at 11 PM at night when nobody was awake. Oh. No wonder these people weren't being found.
3: <laughs>
0: Anyways, <laughs> maybe you might've seen
3: them. Yeah,
0: It's too late. It's too late. Um, so we're on, that, we're on this topic still, and I think this kind of molds into something that I wanted to hear from all of you, and maybe we already kind of talked about a lot about of them, but uh, when it comes to the latest da- data privacy developments this year, w- what's the biggest one that, that kind of sticks out to each of you, and what, is that, what do the implications mean for us in the future?
5: This year? Like yeah, within some- the last 26 days?
0: Oh, you're so funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I guess whatever developed in the last year into okay. today.
2: I'll start with one. If, um, what, and I wouldn't call it the biggest, but I work with a lot of healthcare companies, a lot of business associates of covered entities. And what I'm seeing is a huge increase now of business associates who are creating tech to support patient portals online, They've been using web beacons uh, for years, but it wasn't until MetaPixel was pulled out and shown as a as an example of how that data that's being put into patient portals is actually PHI, and then those companies that are providing them and then sharing that data that the MetaPixels are collecting is PHI now, and it's it's covered. All of a sudden, we've expanded the universe of who are business associates to these organizations that were supporting those portals and they were told, well, don't worry, you're not a business associate because you're only building the, the sites and the apps, but they were putting those in there, not knowing that. So now we have all these new um, entities that possess PHI and they might not even know it. So what's going to happen there when it's breached, when it's uh, discovered? I can tell you right now that there are a lot of lawsuits that are being filed and a lot of complaints that are going to the HHS OCR about this that are being investigated. So that I see that as a big thing for healthcare anyway. I guess.
3: Well, in the privacy space. Okay, you go ahead. No, please. Um, go ahead.
2: Sorry, Jill. Um,
6: I guess for me, um, I guess people are working, waking up to third party risk. Um, I, you, you know, a lot of third parties before a lot of these privacy laws came on, took a very hands-off approach to data collection. They're like, well, I'm just a third party. You know, the company gives me the data. They tell me what to do. I don't, you know, I'm not responsible. And I have to tell them, yeah, you are, you know, you, you can't say, oh, they collect it, they just give it to me. Like, well, they give it to you, you collected it, right? So, um, you know, having organizations understand what their obligations are on a third-party level, and then also being able to comply with these new, not just regulations, uh, I would say through contracts, right? So, company, like say a company is a third-party, doesn't in itself uh, have to comply with something like the CCPA in California, but they're a third party to accompany the, so they push those obligations down to that third party. So I think that calculus is still being sorted out, and people are trying to figure it out, um, but, you know, just more to come on that that topic.
3: I think the if you look back 10 years from now, I think 2022 is probably the year when we we changed the whole focus of data privacy from blaming individuals who got phished or scammed or whatever, letting people into the into the IT structure of a company or a business to a very different thought. And you see this in India in the new draft bill of the Modi government. You see this in the United States issuing rules now for any federal contractor pushing it all the way down the supply chain that at each stage, security, it's not just data privacy. It's Data security is required if you want to supply the federal You see it in what NIST has come out with. You see it. And what is this? This is really a focus to say, wait a minute, we've got to design the infrastructure, the IT and the OT infrastructure. That's the real problem. It's not training my secretary not to get scammed by some phishing attack. Now, that'll continue and we'll all get training, whatever, a mandatory hour. But that's not going to ever solve the problem. And I think last year is the year the world began to realize that.
1: I look forward to that. You are right. It shouldn't be their responsibility. It shouldn't be theirs in the first place, right? Like they, their jobs are not to know how to spot that. And P.S., we're never going to stop things like fishing, right? Like the best of the best of all been fished every last one of them jeff bezos got fished that's a long funny story for those that are familiar with it intimately it's a beautifully awful funny story but you should you should understand that one to understand that the the depth of which anyone can can be compromised debbie um including buffett he just has to make the wrong enemy that's all he just has to make the wrong enemy like maybe we can't um this has been a very fascinating, informative topic. Joe, I look forward to the change that you, that, that, that you believe will be here this year. If there were ever a forward prediction for the year, that's the one I wanna, that's the one I want. The say who hangs out with us two is uh, he salty as his name goes. So he never has, he never has quite those rosy outlooks on, on the air. But I think we can. Well, two uh, years
3: from now, you can call me a prophet or an idiot. Okay, let me. Either know. way,
1: either way, <laughs> they'll know your name. Joe. They'll know your name. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, um, it'll be like so. Twice
1: either
6: way,
0: in in light of in light of time, I'm just going to go ahead and and accept that you guys will will do a part two because I think that there's more that we can talk about. Um, and before I let all of you go, I wanted to ask. Um, uh, An interesting question and we can go around the room. Rebecca, you can start. I know you're short on time. Um, My question to everybody here is a fill in the blank. Privacy is important to me because
2: privacy is important to me because individuals should have the right to control how information about them and their lives and what they're doing is handled and how it's being used and to ensure that it it represents them accurately because there's too many harms done by having bad deductions made from information that people have only used outside of the original context from which it was collected. So that's a long answer. I, I have long answers always. Sorry.
4: <laughs> Thank you. I'll keep it short then. I think privacy is important to me because it's about my freedom. My freedom, because if my personal information, my data, my insights are you incorrectly used with the wrong context, wrong desire, and wrong intentions, my freedom is impacted.
3: Privacy is important to me because it's what separates us as human beings from the rest of the animal kingdom.
0: Love that. Okay.
5: I was also recently asked this question, so I'll just give the same answer because it's consistent. To me, it's because, and this very much builds on what y'all have said, it is the most inherently private, personal thing about someone and the ability to control what information about yours, whether it's your body, your medical information, your location, anything, whether it's the ability to control what's released into the wild. That needs to be controlled, and it needs to be controlled by the person who has it. And if they can't control it being released, they need to at least be able to recage it.
6: Well, privacy is important to me because I think it is about freedom and agency, and I want to have the right not to share.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you all for for sharing that. Um, Again, I think we'll definitely have a part two. We're going to have to because I have so many more things that I want to talk to everybody about. And I know Gabe does. Um, So thank you, everyone. And um, we'll make sure to put everybody's information in the show notes. Um, And uh, before I let you go, I just want to make sure that everybody here, their toilet paper is on the top, not the bottom. (laughs) It's a safe assumption. No. It's a safe assumption. That's right. Safe assumption.
1: There are no mad, there are no madmen in it here except possibly Joe. So
5: talk about personal information, though, Pam.
0: Oh, you're right. Hey, that's what Privacy Please does. We get a little personal at the end.
5: please.
0: All right. Thank you all.
5: Thank you.
3: Have a great day. Bye, Bye y'all. Bye.
0: Hey, you guys made it. All the way to the end. Thanks for listening. Again, if this is your first time, we really appreciate the support and everyone that's always been around since the beginning. We love you guys. Keep supporting privacy, please. And we'll always have new content each and every week. Cameron Ivy, over and out.